This is a disaster, Ron Swanson said when he got his plate at the diner, a breakfast that he did not order. He gives it back to the waiter and he says, listen here, son, tell you what do. Take this back and just give me all the bacon and eggs that you have. The man nods and he starts to turn away and he goes, no, no, wait, I'm worried. I'm worried that when I just said, give me all the bacon and eggs that you have, you heard me to say, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. That's not what I mean. I mean, literally, give me all the bacon and eggs that you have. Ron Swanson, in his Herculean mustache, knows about eating. He's a man who likes to eat a lot. And I've been studying with him. For the purposes of this sermon, an odd sort of seven deadly vice that we don't think about too much. It doesn't seem all that serious. Sure, it might affect our health, but is there any sort of spiritual dilemma that it creates when we overeat or when we overfuss with food? Why does God care about this? Why have ancients who have wrestled with the soul and how to put off the old self and adorn the new self with Christ, how and why have they come up with gluttony as one of the chief grooves in our soul that can lead us astray? Well, that's what we're going to try to talk about today. Hopefully it will be enlightening. But one of the things that you notice in the passages that Andy just read is that the Apostle Paul, for instance, and the Old Testament all over the place, and Jesus, have this sense that there is an interconnection between our wanting for food and drink and some wanting and needing that's underneath that want for food and drink. So God can be said to Fill the hungry with good things, to satisfy the thirsty. In the Old Testament, we're told as the Israelites wandered through the desert and they, being craving creatures like we are, and they hungered for the feasts in Egypt that they surely misremembered, but the, the plenty, the variety, the pots of meat, doesn't that sound exceptional? The cucumbers and leeks and onions and stuff that they ate in plentiful abundance as they wandered in the desert. And after all these years, God tells them, I caused you to hunger so that I could feed you. And so I could feed you with something that you never knew about before. This manna, this what is it, that's the Hebrew for manna. This what is it, this bread type stuff to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. And listening to that and listening to Jesus describe himself as the bread of heaven, listening to the Apostle Paul saying, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Sure, all kinds of things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. 
I'm not going to be mastered, he says, by anything. There's a recognition that there's a very close connection to our eating and drinking and the condition of our trust and dependence on the one we were made to not be able to live without. There is a kind of nutrition that you can't get from Whole Foods and that you can't eat from your organic garden. And that's part of why this is such an important one of the deadly sins, least important usually in the lists. It's usually not considered as important as the other things in the list, but it's important because it stands for so much. And even in the fourth century, gluttony itself stood for all the sins of the flesh. Because what happens is you have appetites. And these appetites must be obeyed. These desires must be answered. And so if you can't control your appetite here, it's hard sometimes to control it in other places as well. So we're going to talk. What does it, what is gluttony? First of all, what is it? A clue. In Philippians, the apostle says this. He speaks about enemies of the cross of Christ who glory in their shame, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Their God is their stomach, which is to say there's an appetite, there's a drive that says my wishes must be answered, and that's the most important thing. That's part of what gluttony is. It's not just overeating. It's not just overdrinking. It's overindulging your own appetites. It's overindulging your own desires. It's obeying your own desires as if they're the only ones that matter. That's why it gets so important. Too much food and drink is one way it works itself out. That's the common way. That's the way we're accustomed to. It's the contempt that some of you can show to people who spend too much time at the Golden Corral or as Charlie Smith used to call it, the hog trough. A place where you can eat and eat, and then you can eat some more. And if you stop then, you don't deserve to be there. You keep going till you get your money's worth. There's a kind of gluttony that has to do with excess of consumption. Too much food. Too much drink. The apostle says this. I'm bringing it up. I don't think I've ever said this in a sermon. So I'm excited to say it today. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And one of the subspecies of gluttonous overmuchness is overdrinking. I've noticed in my adulthood here on Lookout Mountain that Lookout Mountain is filled with Presbyterians who are still basically in high school. Which is to say they drink a whole lot. A ton. But they're, they're free. They're Christian liberty. God doesn't require anything of us. It doesn't matter. We're not Baptists.
The Bible does not denounce alcohol. But it says don't get drunk. Because what the Bible's concerned with is that there are ways of using food or alcohol or drugs or tobacco or any kind of product, any sort of creative thing, there are ways of using it that are meant to gladden that you'll be using it to deaden. And the apostle is concerned about whose influence are you under. See, because anytime you or I give ourselves purely to our appetites to consume and to consume and to consume, to, as it were, cram the emptiness of our souls with, with something that will deaden the clamor. We're putting ourselves under the influence of that thing, which means we're not under the influence of the God who made us and who is intending to make us more human. In fact, it makes us less human. This is one of the dangers of addiction ever how it comes, whether it's whether it's sugar or where it's smoking, whether it's beer that you brewed in your bathtub, or whether it's a more elegant angel's envy, whatever your poison, there's a danger that you won't appreciate these things as a, as a means for conviviality, for gladdening, for giving praise to God, that you'll come at them to abuse them to deaden something inside you, to fill up some emptiness inside you, and you'll fall under its influence. Wendell Berry has a, a great essay called The Tobacco Program, where he writes about the arrangement of tobacco growers, and he writes about it fondly. He grew up in this, in Henry County, Kentucky, where he knew lots of tobacco farmers, and they it was, a, it was a crop that he loved, and he loved everything about the harvesting of it. But in it, he was talking about smoking, which I have no particular vendetta. I, I, I don't smoke. I don't, I'm not going to talk to you about smoking. But he says, in a little self-interview, do you smoke? And he answers himself, well, no, not anymore, but I used to. I was addicted for a long time. Why'd you quit? Well, I had small children in the house, and... I got to where I could smoke a cigarette and not even know that I had done it. And there was no pleasure in that. I find that it's no good to be addicted to anything, whether to speed or petroleum or tobacco, and it gets into larger issues. But he recognizes, as you might, that there's a kind of way of being related to food, drink, goods of the earth where you can just consume them and you actually don't even get any pleasure anymore. That's what gluttony does, is it kills the pleasure of the thing. It, it, it's meant, wine, says God, is meant to gladden the heart of man. It's meant to cause levity. It's meant to be something that's joyful. But when it's abused, it actually depresses. It actually deadens. It actually puts you under its sway. It doesn't move you towards God. It moves you under its influence. And so the apostles say, don't be drunk. Don't be under the influence of created things like wine. Be under the influence of the Spirit of God. Because anytime you put yourself under the influence, anytime you put yourself under the mastery of one of your desires or something created, you're going to wind up dehumanized. You're going to wind up like an animal. I don't think I've told you the story of our dog lady who used to live here and now lives with us, who one day was on the front porch and Kathy was cleaning out, there was some birthday cake or something, she put it 
in a trash bag, and she was about to take it up to the road where the garbage cans are. She went back inside for a minute. She came out. The birthday cake was gone, or largely. Kathy put a video on for an interrogation. No, it was just for fun, but she put a video on, and she's talking to the dog who's in front of our door. And she says, lady, did you take the cake? And the dog literally goes. And she says again, lady, did you eat the cake? And the dog, in a fit of overwhelming shame, keeps looking backwards and backwards until she eventually just turns her back on Kathy, asking her if she had cake. And so far as we know, lady doesn't even speak English. (laughs) But she's an animal. And so she saw cake, and then therefore she must have it. She just went after it. Her appetite just ruled her, but then she was overcome with shame, and that happens to you as well. You become like an animal, and you go after it. You just... And then you're like Louis C.K. And you say, the meal is not over because we ran out of food. The meal's not over until I hate myself. Because that's what happens. That's what this kind of abuse does is it makes you hate yourself because it demeans you. It doesn't liberate you. It doesn't draw you closer to God. It makes you feel awful. It makes you feel less than. It ruins pleasure. And that's why the apostle can say, Don't put yourself under that kind of influence and mastery. Don't be mastered by these things. Be mastered by the one who actually wants to make you more human. Who wants the spirit of Jesus, who wants to make you loving. Who wants to make you fulfilled. Who wants to give you a sense of purpose. Who wants to enliven you. He doesn't want to depress you. He wants to motivate you. He wants to move you. He wants to gladden and not deaden So there's a kind of gluttony that's too much food, that's too much drink. It's putting ourselves under the sway of our desires, deifying these desires, obeying our stomachs. And in the process, being destroyed. But there's another kind of gluttony that's, that's altogether different. This isn't the kind of gluttony you would find at the Golden Corral. This is the kind of gluttony you'd find at Alea or Aaliyah. I hang out there a lot. This is the kind of gluttony that hides itself from us because we're not overeating. We're just over fussy. I just have a coconut macchiata with a slight sprinkle, not a dash, a sprinkle of cinnamon and just a half teaspoon of soy milk and... 126 degrees, not 125 degrees, 126 degrees. It's a kind of fussing and particular demandingness about food and its preparation that makes life miserable for everybody around you and makes you miserable when you can't get it perfect. If you go to meals and are frequently dissatisfied afterwards, like, ugh. That was a disappointment. That's your gluttony showing up. Because you were hoping something fantastic would happen. It was just so. 
You went to the restaurant. You saw the menu. You knew the menu didn't mean anything. That menu is not anything set in stone. It's all up for grabs. What do you have in the back? I'll have half of this and a sprinkle of this. and Let's substitute this for this. It's just fussing. It's saying, I have particular desires. They must be obeyed. And I don't care if it makes you miserable, waiter person, or if it makes my table miserable, or if it makes the chef miserable. I must have it the way I want it. You're still being ruled by your belly. You're still being governed by your own desire. So there's a kind of gluttony of excess, which we're aware of, and there's kind of a gluttony, as C.S. Lewis would say, of delicacy. Oh, no, no. Not, not, not so much. I just want a tiny little bit. And it's a... It's lovely. It felt like a Saturday afternoon special. It's about to make the moral of the story. I've lost myself. Overmuch and delicacy. All of it has to do with being eventually a beast with a belly. Governed by your desires which you have deified. Which you've said, what I want must be had because otherwise I'm going to be empty. I'm going to be, I'm going to be dissatisfied. I'm going to be filled with cravings and I've got to have it the way I want it. I think you understand this, what I'm saying. And so the question would be, what do you do about this? How do you, how do, you do something about it? Well, I think one thing you do is you look at, you just look at the life of Jesus, which is very instructive in these matters. Because comfortingly, the only one of the seven deadly sins that Jesus was ever accused of was gluttony. So that's good. Jesus lived his life in such a way that people said, hey, how can you be such a spiritual guy? John the Baptist is fasting. But here you come eating and drinking. You're a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus apparently liked wine and he liked to eat with his friends who were impolite people. He was around them enough where people could say, you're a glutton and a drunkard. Now, of course, he also was called a blasphemer. They didn't necessarily accuse him rightly. They also said, don't you have a devil? Aren't we right in saying you're de- demon-possessed? Uh, people didn't always assess Jesus correctly. That doesn't mean he was a glutton. But it means that celebration and feasting were some part of his life, which is a great comfort. Because, you see, Jesus and the scriptures are not anti-enjoyment. You know, God invented enjoyment. Scriptures aren't anti-pleasure. God invented pleasure. And so we have these desires to eat. You can't not have a relationship with food. That's one of the hard things about it if you have a bad relationship with food. You can't just stop. You have to relate to it. And the scriptures quote and say, God has given you everything for enjoyment. And so there is a very real sense in which you're to eat and let that bring you gladdened states of being. 
gratitude to God, it should move you to that. So every now and again, you should eat a good sandwich and go, mmm. We saw someone do that one time. I know someone who saw someone do that one time. But there's also this aspect, and many Christian writers would say this, is the way you overcome gluttony is not by dieting, but by fasting. That the Christian life should have this bothness to it. These times of abstaining and these times from engaging, of, of engaging. These times from not having and times of having. That's what the church calendar is about. The Lenten season is supposed to be a season of fasting. Of saying there are good things, things that are allowable to me. But I'm going to go without them to get in touch with my hungers because I know underneath this craving for sugar, I might actually be craving something from the heavens. So I'm going to go without this for a time so that I can be related rightly to it later. You fast sometimes and you feast sometimes. There's both aspects in the Christian life. Most of us don't participate in the fasting part. And that's why we ought to pay attention to it. That there are times when we say, I'm going to back off of this so that I can become aware of maybe the bread of heaven wants to bring some kind of nourishment to me. Maybe I need to learn to live as if I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of God. Because you see, that is the danger. If you never fast, if we always have a bad relationship to food, then one of the things that will happen is we'll start to think that our life just consists of food. And Jesus said the life isn't just about food. And it's more than your body. You'll start to think that the only things that matter in life are about getting your pleasures met. And the Bible wants to say, no, 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 it's not it. You have, you have deep spiritual malnutrition and you can't get that fixed by going to the icebox, to the refrigerator, to the pantry. There are things in you that crave to be filled. And even though Krispy Kreme donuts are going to try to promise you, these things actually talk to me. <laughs> have you ever had a conversation with a Krispy Kreme donut? I have. I don't talk back. I try to pretend like they're not saying things. You want to be happy, don't you, Eric? How on earth could anybody be happy, be happy if they didn't have this? Chocolate on the top, white cream in the middle, plenteous lard, sugar enough to put you in an instant coma. Surely, surely, you can't live another minute without obeying, I promise, says this donut. And I say, yeah, you're probably right. Unfortunately. But see, your life is more than food. And if God really does cause us to hunger so that he can feed us, if he really does say, hey, you know, there are, there are things in you, because you're human and not an animal, that you're not merely made to run on instinct. You're not merely made to obey your hungers and your thirst. Sure, obey your hungers and thirst if you know what they're telling you. And all your hungers and thirsts are not telling you you need more pizza or more quinoa dip. 
I don't even know any fancy food to make good illustrations with. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven. If you come to me, there's, there's satiation that you don't know anything about. It's so fundamental to your life. You're meant to run off of me in ways that you probably don't know, especially if you never give yourself time to feel the true hunger of it, to feel the true desperation of it. Some of you, will, this will happen tonight for some of you. I bet 86% of the people in here tonight will feel this. The Sunday cloud. You've heard us talk of it? The Sunday cloud. It comes on you on Sunday nights, whether you're a student or you're going to work tomorrow. And it's this sense of, like, everything's awful. And that tomorrow your life's about to end again. (laughs) And it's not, you don't want to feel it. It's just this dread cloud that comes and it starts to choke you. And you just feel this, like, Nothing. I just need. I just need something. And what? What is that something? It's probably going to be food, isn't it? Man, if I just had a good snack, we need some ice cream. That'll make the dread go away. That'll fix my existential crisis. Pizza. If I just had pizza, I would never feel sad again. But if we can sometimes say, wait, 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 maybe I, maybe I have a hunger that's telling me about something else more than just the need for caloric intake. And see, the only way you're going to make any progress on these things, on any kind of thing, and I don't make a lot of progress myself in this one, is to not focus on not eating. You know, that's why these guys say it's not dieting but fasting that helps break gluttony. Because gluttony, that puts you in the place, that puts you in the place of being able to focus your attention when you feel hunger to focus your attention on the bread of heaven. You've heard me talk before about this, con- this uh, idea of the ironic process theory. Yeah, you talk about it all the time. No, it's the idea of don't think about pink elephants. I know we've talked about this before. If you're addicted to anything, see, lust is connected to this. A lot of people have lust addictions. A lot of people have food addictions. A lot of people have substance addictions. If you're addicted to anything and you want to stop it, the way to stop it is not to spend your day telling yourself to stop it. You've been helped before, right? When someone says, I just can't stop worrying. And they say, well, just stop it. Don't think about it. And you're like, oh, You mean, I think I'm sitting here dying of a brain tumor, and I should just stop thinking about it. I never thought of that before. It would be nice if worry worked that way, or desire. I just didn't know. You just stop thinking about it. Well, see, it's it's not so easy. So if you wake up in the morning, and you're like, I'm not going to eat Krispy Kreme donuts today. You're going to eat Krispy Kreme donuts today. If you tell yourself 42 times in a day you're not going to eat Krispy Kreme donuts, you certainly will. Because that's all you're thinking about. And you're made to run on desire. It's just that you have to displace certain desires and and turn your attention elsewhere. So Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but do be filled with something. Be filled with the Spirit of God. He doesn't say, don't think about wine, don't think about wine, don't think about wine, don't think about wine. He says, 
Sing songs. Be with God's people. Get in the Psalms. Get, get some meaty substance for your soul from the, the Spirit of God who wants to make you into a human again and not an animal. Sing. Make music in your hearts. You're allowed to sing outside of this place. You know that? So the apostle wants you to, to turn your attention away from the thing you're turning from and turn it towards Jesus who satisfies your desires with good things, who fills the hungry, who says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Gluttony is when we fall under the influence of our stomachs, when we deify our desires, when we say, I have got to have this on my terms, whether that means in excess or whether that means with a great deal of fussing and particularity, I've got to have it just so. In either case, it ruins pleasure. It doesn't give you the enjoyment you want. It winds up deadening your ability to enjoy. It winds up running you into the ground. And on this week, when Jesus says to his disciples, look, don't work. Don't spend your life merely on food that's going to spoil Work for food that endures to eternal life. There's more to your life than your belly's telling you. There's more to your life than what you're going to get for lunch or how you're going to see yourself through the next day. There is one, we'll call him the bread of heaven, who gives life to the world, who says, I mean to do some kind of satisfaction some kind of filling up of your inner emptiness, some kind of accepting of you so that you don't hate yourself. You can love the self that he has loved so that you're not ruled by somehow like Lady, our dog, by the shame where she can't meet you in the eye. Well, Jesus says, have you failed? I'm the biggest glutton failure here. Have you failed? Well, keep coming to me. And let me breathe on you. And let me be the bread of heaven to you and keep coming back so that I may satisfy your desires. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Amen.